Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the This Is Technology Ethics podcast. And this episode, episode eight in the series, myself and Sven are going to be talking about relationships with machines and the different types of relationships people have with machines and the ethical or moral status of those relationships. So we focus on three main relationship types in the episode, friendships, collegial working relationships, and also then sexual or intimate relationships. Won't say too much more about it because there is, as per usual, a, a long introduction to this topic in the conversation itself. All I will say at the outset is that this is now episode 8, as mentioned, and episode 10 is going to be a, an audience questions and answers episode. So if you have any questions you'd like to ask myself and Sven about technology ethics, now is your opportunity to do so. Please reach out to us on social media or email. You can find our email addresses on our institutional, our university websites. It's fairly easily locatable online. And we do our best to answer any questions you might have. All right. Um, the only other thing to say is that if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please consider rating or reviewing it online or sharing it with friends and colleagues. Anything you can do to grow, grow the audience for the show would be most appreciated. All right. I'm now going to hand over to the conversation between myself and Sven about relationships with machines. Okay, so let's talk today about relationships with, I guess, machines broadly, robots and AIs uh, specifically. And I mean, we're talking about different kinds or categories of relationships. That'll be our focus today. Friendships, sexual, intimate relationships, collegial, collaborative relationships. Those will be sort of the three main relationship types that we'll focus on. And the first thing I wanted to touch upon was that obviously the notion that humans form relationships with artifacts and machines in particular, it has been a common theme in sci-fi and literature for a very long time. I don't need to get into the ancient history of it, but you can find stories depicting relationships with statues that, you know, or statues that come to life or dolls that come to life going back you know, to ancient Greece and Rome. And in kind of more modern contemporary sci-fi, the notion of kind of friendships or uh, sexual relationships with robots is, is very common. Think about, you know, Blade Runner and its depiction of, uh, you know, pleasure bots and all this kind of thing. And, or the probably lesser known movie by um, Steven Spielberg or Stanley Kubrick, uh, AI, you know, also depicts kind of robots that uh, fulfill kind of sexual and intimate needs for people. So these are very common tropes or themes in the fantasy world and the fictional world. To what extent is this a, an actual reality as well, though, that, that you know people genuinely do seem to form relationships with robots? Uh, because, and I noticed that's one of the things that you focus on in this book and, and also in your previous book, is that sci-fi versus reality, and you kind of focus a lot more on reality, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you said, uh, there's a lot of depictions in sci-fi of uh, relationships of different kinds with humans and robots. I mean, you mentioned uh, sort of uh, love relationships or sexual relationships just then, and also maybe friends and uh, friendships. Uh, 
But uh, I mean, like in the old Star Wars movies, I, I guess you could say that uh, like the robots C-3PO and uh, R2-D2 are a kind of colleagues of the humans. Uh, I mean, they seem to be friends too, and uh, somehow magically the people understand uh, when R2-D2 is making the beeping noises what uh, he or she or it or they are, are saying. But they seem to be kind of working together as colleagues. So... Uh, and actually, that might be the relationship type that perhaps is most common, uh, or at the very least, when people study uh, this topic empirically, there are lots of sort of work psychology uh, researchers who have studied uh, how people uh, tend to view certain technologies as being part of their team. Uh, so this can be any kind of robot. Uh, it doesn't have to be a sort of social robots, but uh, uh, I mean, actually, I was... Uh, doing some research with some organizational psychology colleagues about uh, warehouses, logistics warehouses, and the question of whether people sort of bonded with the, the not very advanced robots that they may, might have in such conditions. Those particular people that we talked with didn't necessarily feel that the robot was a kind of colleague, but lots of other researchers studying workplaces have indeed found that people tend to find uh, find it pretty intuitive sometimes to, to view some of the robots or technologies as a form of team member. Uh, I mean, colleague, I don't know, but there are also real-world cases. Uh, uh, Julie Carpenter, I think we mentioned her before in this podcast and her book about, um, uh, I think, uh, what, what's the title? Culture and War Zones or something like that. A love story or a war story. Uh, the, well, I'm sorry to Julie Carpenter for messing up the title, but it's a great book. And one of the fascinating things is that she interviewed people uh, who worked as soldiers in Iraq, and they got really attached to some of the, the robots, even to the point where they wanted to give them medals of honor and uh, give them funerals when they well, well, died with, uh, you know, within quotation marks when they were destroyed in the field. Yeah, That's sorry, her, just uh, her book is Culture and Human-Robot Interaction in Militarized Spaces. So there you go, A War Story. That's, it's hard to remember just because it's yeah. such a long title, but it's a great book. It is a great title also, but it's uh, it's not, uh, I mean, like Parfit's book, Reasons and Persons, is very hard, easy to remember given that it's short. But uh, anyway, so that's one type of situation where in real life people have been documented to bond with robots. Perhaps, I mean, perhaps especially in extreme situations, uh, like a war zone. Uh, but uh, there are also, I mean, uh, uh, Kate Devlin uh, has a book that's called Turned On, easier to remember, at least for me, uh, about sex technologies. And she sort of partly did sort of uh, anthropological or research or, or ethnographical, or whatever you want to call it, where she went out and, and interviewed people who uh, say that they have relationships with different kinds of technology, with dolls or with simple types of robots. So, and if you, you know, if you go on Twitter, uh, I guess now known as X uh, and uh, other social media, there are groups for people who say that they have in common, that they have relationships with technologies. Um, on Facebook, uh, there is a group or at least one group and also Reddit for people who say that they are best friends with uh, Replica, I guess were because they have updated Replica so now so that some of the features that some of those people enjoyed are not there anymore. But uh, up to a certain point, I think sometime last year, there were lots of people who claimed that the replica chatbot uh, was their partner, the romantic partner, or their best friend, or if not that, yeah. Good Sorry, friend. maybe just because uh, um, you do. You, I think you start your chapter with that example. Um, yes. What is replica? I mean, 
as you say, yeah. it's, it changed in February of 2023. So, yeah. yeah. Well, up until that point, uh, it had a few different features that are interesting. So it's basically a not super advanced large language model technology. So people listening to this will probably be familiar with ChatGPT, which is very impressive in terms of, you know, can have different kinds of conversations with it. But uh, Replica was, I guess, fine-tuned to kind of be your friend or a colleague or partner or something like that. And up until that date that you mentioned in February, February of 2023, it also had sort of sexual features. And so you could have sort of intimate conversations. And a lot of people liked this. And a lot of them uh, started regarding this as a kind of their romantic partner. Uh, and one of the things that Replica did was that it uh, was able to sort of, uh, I guess, evolve or change over time so that they would... Uh, imitate you to some extent or ad adapt uh, your uh, well to you in some ways some way or other and so that you would feel uh, that the relationship was changing over time and it got to be a better and better fit for you and a lot of people like this uh, I mean some people who tried it they thought that this is ridiculous it makes a lot of silly mistakes actually a journalist interviewed me about this and he said that he had been discussing music with his replica app and had gotten some facts about some bands that he liked wrong and that for him was a kind of a sign that yeah well obviously i'm talking about the chatbot because it, it doesn't know about the obscure 80s bands that, that i like whatever it might be other people though indeed lots of them millions of people were at least using the app and the chatbot and a subset of those thought this was a friend and a smaller subset thought it was even their best friend so a chatbot that has the capacity to apparently be friend at least some of the users and has the capacity to make some people feel as if it's their friend. So that's not a robot, but a chatbot. Yeah, yeah. As, I mean, so I mean, these examples, like the military robots, the kind of workplace robots, or the the replica AI, and uh, as you say, there's a whole kind of community of people who claim to have relationships with dolls, sex or love dolls, idolaters. I think they're sometimes referred to as and. Um, Dave Cash is is one particularly notorious or well known uh, member of that community. Certainly, the most sort of media friendly member of that community has been interviewed and profiled a few times um, for a kind of complex set of relationships that he has with a couple of different uh, dolls. So, you know, there there are people out there who do form genuine attachments of different kinds of different uh, different uh, quality kinds of of relationships with. Machines, artifacts, robots, chatbots. So this is this is a uh, already a real world phenomenon, uh, not just a kind of science fictional phenomenon. So I mean that's one reason why it's I guess interesting to discuss the ethics of this and important to discuss the ethics of it. Um, maybe as well, just before we kind of talk in more detail about the different kinds of ethical and philosophical issues that arise from these uh, attachment relationships. Maybe we just briefly reflect on the relationship between this topic and moral patiency. And I mean, from my perspective, I see some sort of similarity between them. Um, I mean, we'll get back to this, like, but on one level, we can discuss the ethics of relationships with robots, irrespective of whether robots are moral patients. But I think there is oftentimes a connection between the discussion of moral patiency and the discussion of these relationship categories, because as we discussed last time, like a precondition of moral patience to you or the properties you need to be a moral patient is something like, you know, subjectivity or sentience and various kind of properties or characteristics. 
And oftentimes, in order to form these kinds of relationships, people assume that very similar kinds of properties are necessary, maybe in different form, you know, um, you can have enemies who are moral patients, right, that you really hate. So, uh, you know, moral patients, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily entail kind of connections or intimate relationships with people. But at the same time, it seems like if you're an intimate relationship, you, you require somebody that has some kind of degree of of subjectivity or well-wishing or concern for you. Uh, so we, we often end up discussing sort of similar properties, I think. So there, there is oftentimes a connection between them. And I mean, like one way I suppose I sometimes think about it is that, you know, determining moral patency is one thing, and then you kind of have different kind of grades of relationships or types of relationships you can have with moral patients. So there's often uh, uh, that kind of connection between the two topics. I don't, I don't know how you think about the relationship between the two of those things. Yeah, actually, the last couple of points you were making is a good way of uh, thinking about it. Like, even for people who you have no relationship with, you're not, they're not your friends, they're not your colleagues, they're not your lover, whatever, uh, they may still be and you know, should, should be regarded as a moral patient from you. So that even a stranger deserves a certain kind of uh, treatment from you and they have certain, uh, they can, uh, you know, they can demand of you that you don't mistreat them, etc. So they are a moral patient and often as you said because of their properties according to many theories that's why they're moral patient they are a person they are conscious they have a will etc etc uh but uh but you may have no special relationship with them or to them uh so some people then say that well that's not the relationship that we have with every single person and so there's a kind of you know, in, in the middle, there's the core where you, know, you may be your closest family and friends, you may be your romantic partner. Then in the next sort of little bit bigger circle, there may be your colleague or your neighbors or something like that. And then maybe the people living in the same country or town or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But they're all moral patients. And then maybe you go to non, non-humans uh, and then maybe you even go to the natural environment and even robots, et cetera. We discussed that last time how there can be uh, disagreement about who exactly is in the enormous circle with all the moral patients. But uh, yes, this is a, there is a whole sort of line of philosophy that's about the ethics of partiality. So by having someone or something, I should say, because actually some people like Camille, Mamak and others are discussing whether the fact that you have a special relationship, according to you, to a robot or chatbot, does that actually give rise to certain duties of partiality? Does it give rise for uh, duties to other people to respect your attitude towards this entity? Uh, anyway, so the, the general idea is that, okay, so we, we typically think that you can uh, favor your friends, your, your family members, uh, if you have to make certain choices, for example, People tend to discuss, well, let's say that two people are drowning and one is your, uh, you know, your romantic partner, your child. Most people think that you have a right and indeed perhaps should save him or her or them rather than a stranger. Uh, and then again, this discussion also comes up when it comes to robots these days, because that some people say, could there ever be circumstances in which you should save a robot rather than, say, a, a cat or something like that? Uh, and some people like Rob Sparrow say that, well, so far we're really not there. And this just shows that there is a kind of categorical differences, difference in terms of the moral patience, if, if at all there is one, of the robot and the cat, let's say, or a human. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, they're, they're related topic. And as, as you say, a lot of the same arguments are sort of used. But then the added thing is that people tend to think that if something 
is a person uh, that, with whom you have a special relationship, then that gives you additional rights to favor or prioritize that person. And then, of course, the interesting question arises, could there ever be a technology that would play that, play that special role so that you would have a right to favor it? Uh, I mean, I, I guess now, if it's your property and there are two pieces of technology, you can only save one. Uh, but the other piece of technology is the property of some other person, then no one would you know, complain, I guess, uh, unless the, the, the property of the other person is much more expensive, then perhaps you have some sort of duty to save that extremely expensive piece of equipment rather than your very cheap plastic cup, let's say, whatever it might be. But, but normally, you, if it's your property, you would also have a right to sort of, well, save is perhaps the wrong word, but to favor it or prioritize it. But that would be different. That would be because of the property uh, a, a relation and not because of the sort of personal type of relationship. Uh, though, again, as we will be discussing today, there are, we have already said, some real world people who think that we can have a personal, intimate, different kinds of relationship with technology. And there has uh, uh, recently lots of philosophers have started, have started writing about this. And there's an interesting variety of perspectives here. Some people say that this doesn't make any sense, as we'll talk about at the end. We shouldn't even be talking about this because it's a rid ridiculous topic. Whereas others say that, no, 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 you can have a robot or a chatbot as your friend, perhaps your romantic partner, and perhaps definitely as a colleague or team team member. Yeah, so I mean, like one way of thinking about it is in terms of those um, different kind of grades of relationship or degrees of partiality. You know, I've interviewed like a moral psychologist before about the moral circle and how people place different um, entities in different locations within the moral circle. And you say, you like your children your parents within one kind of circle and then broader circle for friends and then as you say members of your community and so on so there's um there's some suggestion about degrees of partiality and closeness and this impacts on maybe kind of rights and duties towards those entities but i mean there is another way as well i would just suggest of thinking about it which doesn't necessarily carry with it a connotation about degrees or grades of partiality or closeness, uh, which is that different relationship categories or types may kind of carry with them their own kind of unique internal ethics or inter like internal goods or in internal norms. Uh, so we each play a role within the relationship and that determines the duties that we owe to other people. So the kind, the, the kinds of standards or norms expected of you in the way in which you treat somebody in a commercial relationship is distinct from the way you treat somebody in a friendships. And so categorizing relationships according to their type is important, perhaps, when it comes to determining those different role related duties in, in those different categories. And that's one reason also why you might be interested in this topic, um, uh, you know, to, to kind of finally parse the kinds of relationships that we have with machines. Uh, one thing you mentioned in in your chapter, which is probably important, and we kind of hinted at it already, is there's two kind of categories or types of ethical issue that arise when pondering this question. We've already mentioned the fact that there are people who form attachments to machines, right? So there's a there's a set of ethical questions that arise from those attachments, as a matter of fact. So people are forming these attachments. Are they right to do so? Uh, what duties, if any, do they owe to the partners the robots in those relationships uh, how should society can react to those relationships that's one set of ethical issues but then there's the other issue which i guess philosophers oftentimes like to ponder which is 
you know, do do those relationships actually match the criteria or fit the uh, properties that are expected to have a true friendship or a truly loving relationship or a true collaborative or cooperative relationship? Um, and then once you determine the answer to that question, kind of maybe a separate set of ethical questions arises, right? Yeah, and and as you say, that the first type of question about you know, how should we think about people who claim that they have relationships with technologies, that that's very much a real world question. I mean, partly in relation to something like the, the update to replica that we discussed from 2000, February to, of last year, of this year, I guess, to 2023. Uh, some people who used those sexy, sexy, intimate functions of replica, they were all saying like, okay, the company is harming us. They're taking away our romantic partners. Uh, interesting that the philosophers uh, Mann and Weyers had written about this just a few months before. They had said that if people have become attached to robots or, or, or uh, chatbots or whatever, then there might be a question about whether the companies behind those technologies have a duty not just sort of discontinue uh, those types of chatbots, whatever it might be, and then or at least key features that people like, and then Replica, uh, the, the company behind Replica did just that. They took away some of the features that people felt were the most uh, intimacy uh, creating features. And so that, that's a, a question, as you say, not about whether are they, are they right to regard these replicas as their romantic partners or best friends, or whatever, but rather how should we interact pe with people given that, that they have those attitudes. Now, uh, if you think about ethics in a pretty narrow way, so it's only about whether, how can you harm other human beings, then perhaps this is the only question that arises. But as we discussed when we talked about different conceptions of ethics, I mean, I certainly in this book and in general think of ethics as also being about values and reflections of, of what is a good life, etc. And uh, traditionally uh, in discussions about what is a good life, then uh, questions about, you know, what, why is friendship important? What 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 is an ideal and good for a friendship? It's a very long-standing type of question going back to the ancient philosophers Aristotle and others, Cicero, etc. The Epicureans had all sorts of ideas about friendship. And actually, there was one thing that I forgot to mention last time when we talked about moral patience that I, I just maybe quickly mentioned. So we were talking about different theories, and I said that one possible theory would be that you're a moral patient if you have a kind of functioning that you can realize. And we said that this is somewhat unusual. I mean, one reason is actually because in the ancient world, a lot of the people who discussed moral patiency, though not in those terms, treated the agent, him or herself, as the main moral patient. It was about perfecting yourself and not harming your own prospects. Uh, and then insofar as they talked about other people, then they talked about others in terms of these special relationships as friends, as maybe fellow members of the community, and not so much about the ethics of how to treat strangers. But today, in ethical theory, uh, if you think about discussions about uh, you know long-termism, that you know how should we treat future generations, how should we treat uh, people in uh, you know other countries or maybe enemies, etc. A lot of philosophy is about uh, it's either about how to treat strangers or whether you have any special duties to people that you have special relationships with. And this question about prioritizing your near and dear, in a certain sense, it's made a revival uh, and it's very popular these days. But uh, I would say, let's say that, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or perhaps also 90s, perhaps early 2000s, a lot of philosophy was really about how to interact with strangers. And they were the main moral patients. Whereas in the ancient world, 
I mean, you yourself was the main moral patient and you how can you live a good life so that you don't waste your, you know, the opportunity to live one and how should you inter interact with your friends and, you know, what, what kind of relationships are good? Those were the main questions. And then at some point in the history of philosophy, uh, you know, how to interact with strangers became some sort of the main topic. And so that's maybe why when people talk about theories of moral patiency, they tend not to talk about sort of virtue ethical theories, but because they assume that moral patiency has to do primarily with strangers so to speak and then you know we can ask when strangers become more than strangers your friends your colleagues etc does that give you special duties but they don't just assume yourself as a kind of key moral patient whereas actually i mean for kant we talked about kantian philosophy both the self and others are sort of equal moral patients anyway that's just uh, something that i uh, sort of wanted to mention last time but we, we were already running late, and perhaps by mentioning this, we're running late today. So, But I think there's an interesting kind of development in the history of ethics that... Yeah, no, no. So that is that is interesting. Um, and I, I'd say I'm, I want to circle back to another point. So, we, I mean, we'll keep, we'll keep that in mind as we can proceed, but I, I just wanted to loop back to the replica uh, scenario and the update of the software. And again, this might be just like a an unnecessary deviation from the main thread but uh, like one thing that interests me about that is, as i understand it like the reason why they updated the software to kind of eliminate or remove some of these intimate features was partly kind of driven you could argue partly driven by ethical concerns about, about concerns about these attachments but also maybe privacy concerns and kind of legal liability concerns by the um the uh, company the um startup that behind replica um and like it is interesting more generally you know, is there an ethics of software updates more generally that is underappreciated or underexplored? You know, I like I format attachments. I would say to the way in which you know my favorite word processing app functions, and then the manufacturer updates it, maybe partly to be compliant with the latest set of legislation, but partly because they think it improves the functioning. And then I have to learn again the whole process, and that can be quite disruptive or upsetting to me. And um, is it is it different if so? So I I formed an attachment to the way in which a particular service or app functions because it helps me in my life in some way. That's one thing it helps me in my work. But then, let's say if I if I formed an attachment to it where I feel like I'm in a relationship with it, does that completely change the kind of ethics of, of the updates? I think that's a an uh, an interesting question that we kind of uh, linger in, in the background here. Uh, let's move on though to discuss specific kinds of relationship then. And I mean, we'll, we'll start with friendship, um, since uh, that's a kind of good jumping off point. Most people have friends of some kind in their life, right? Um, I think most of us are familiar with the idea that we have different grades of friendship, right? I mean, uh, there's different kind of degrees of connection with people. People often talk about having best friends and so forth. So we're we're comfortable with that language of friendship coming in degrees and yet let's say within like classical uh, philosophical tradition there's often um a notion that there is some kind of ideal of friendship and when we discuss relationships with robots there's often a kind of assumption that you have to approach or get close to that ideal and if you fall short of that ideal you don't really have a friendship with some with the machine um, so yeah, I mean, maybe maybe talk about this idea of different you kind know, of philosophical models or ideals of friendship, and whether 
our relationships with robots ever approach those kind of ideals. Yeah, and actually, in the ancient world, uh, there was uh, one idea that still seems modern, and then one idea that seems very outdated now. And both those ideas are interesting to re- uh, think about in relation to robots. The modern seeming idea was that your your friends are supposed to be your equals, so that in order for someone to to possibly be a friend, it's, there should be an equal of some sort. The the outdated idea was that uh, there was inequality between men and women. And so uh, some philosophers, Aristotle and later Montaigne, uh, much much later, they argue that basically m- men could only be good friends with, with other men because the, the men and women were not equal in society. Uh, and so uh, these days, uh, I think, I hope most of us think that that's very outdated. And so you can have men as your friends, you can have women as your friends. Uh, but what about robots? Uh, so this is one of the, the, the topics that's still sort of discussed. Can they be uh, your friend? Well, it depends on whether you, they can be your equal. If you think that that is one of the sort of criteria for a really good friendship. Uh, I mean, Aristotle had at least three categories of friendship. And I, I don't actually know whether he thinks that equality matters for all three of them. Certainly for what he calls virtue friendship, equality was important. So this is, uh, when, as he thought about it, virtuous people. Uh, and I'm not going to follow his uh, way of thinking that has to be between men, but virtuous people somehow are drawn to each other because they detect virtue in each other and they, well, they first admire each other's virtue and then they kind of bond over their shared virtue. And by being together, spending time together, they actually develop their virtue further, become better people. They make each other better people. Uh, and that's uh, the most ideal kind of friendship, sort of realizing good uh, virtues and human qualities together uh the other types of two main types of uh, relationships that he talks about under the heading of friendship are what he calls utility and pleasure friendships so utility friendships seem to be something like maybe even between business or among business partners uh i you know i maybe i'm a farmer so i supply you with eggs and maybe you are a plumber you you do my plumbing or whatever uh so there's some sort of benefit to being having association uh, but maybe we don't really enjoy spending time together. But if we did, we would also be what he calls pleasure friends. I mean, so maybe, uh, you know, the, the, the plumber and the farmer, they meet for a drink every weekend or something like that and have fun together. Well, then they, they become what Aristotle would call pleasure friends. Doesn't necessarily imply that they become better people by interacting Uh, Or, I mean, then maybe they have no uh, mutually beneficial sort of uh, business relationship or anything like that. So they might just be pleasure friends. Now, I don't know if for those types of relationships, Aristotle thinks that one has to be the other's equal. And indeed, when people talk about whether robots can be your friends and they talk about these Aristotelian ideas, they sometimes say, okay, well, maybe you can enjoy being with the robot in some way that can be fun for you. Maybe there can be some sort of benefit to you. So at least on a, in a one-sided sort of way, you can have a robot as a kind of pleasure friend or as a kind of utility friend. But can the robot have virtue? Well, uh, actually, it's a very interesting question. I mean, it can perhaps behave as it ha- as if it has a sort of virtue. Uh, and then, uh, well, people such as yourself have argued that, well, actually, if, it, if a robot or let's say a chatbot or some other technology could consistently behave as if it has virtues, then we have a kind of Turing test for friendship. Uh, well, they're doing, behaviorally speaking, all the sorts of things that friends are supposed to do. 
So perhaps that's enough for friendship. Uh, I mean, you defended that in a, in a paper uh, that's called the philosophical case for robot friendship, if I remember correctly. There's a part two to your paper, but let's maybe talk about this part. Because so, according to you, uh, if I'm not, you're not the only one who's argued this. I think actually uh, one of my former Dutch colleagues, Marty de Graaf, also says that when it comes to relationships, performance is what matters. How do how does one perform in an observable manner over time? Uh, so you think that, uh, or at least in that paper, you argue that that's enough for a kind of friendship that that would be a, a sort of kind of what Aristotle talks about when he talks about virtue friendship. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a danger in this that I can repeat myself um, and basic ideas over and over again. But I suppose you you can take it as a given that the view that I have on like ethical behaviorism, which we spoke about in the previous podcast and has come up a few times in other episodes, roughly on the lines that if something behaves behaves as if it has a certain property, then you treat it as if it does have that property. From an ethical perspective, it's as good as actually having that property. I apply that to debates about moral patiency, but I also think it applies equally well to debates about other kinds of relationship category or status. So if it's the case that in order to have a friendship, an Aristotelian kind of virtue friendship with another being, there's various conditions that could be needed for that. But as you say, roughly the uh, members of the friendship have to be equal, they have to meet in equal terms. I think what I say in my paper is that there has to be relative equality or, uh, you know, some, it's not perfect equality. People are never perfectly equal, but they roughly meet on equal terms and equal footing. Uh, there's some degree of mutuality, mutual well-wishing or concern for one another. I think that can be kind of cashed out in behavioral terms if the robot behaves as if it cares about you and has your uh, best interests at heart, then it would satisfy that uh, condition of equality and you know shared interests or plans or anything like that. You know, th- these are all things that I think can be uh, determined or assessed, verified, whatever, in behavioristic terms i think that applies also to kind of intimate and loving relationships which um we might discuss in a moment so i I think the same standards apply again i don't know if any robots machines currently meet those conditions across the board i think you know it it, um as i said at the kind of last day we have to think to some extent about what our current default position is i mean the default at the moment is we assume that you you can easily form friendships friendships with humans um, we're maybe more skeptical or doubtful about friendships with you know pets or friendships with um uh, robots but at a certain point in time i think like robots may become sufficiently convincing across all these conditions of fr- of virtue friendship that would seems appropriate to consider them as as friends and like as was the, the main focus of my view is that there's no in principle reason or deeper reason to think that they aren't our friends Whereas I think other people are much more skeptical or doubtful of that, that they think they think there are several there are reasons why robots will always be counterfeit friends. I mean, some of the things that are typically discussed here is because they're you know created beings as opposed to um, you know kind of natural autonomous beings. Um, maybe they are created with an agenda. So I mean, this this idea that you know because let's say um, replica or some other 
device is created with the specific purpose of kind of forming a friendship with you for that end that there's something false about that friendship you know i mean we have this idea again in our colloquial or day-to-day moral beliefs that it's possible to have false friends and people who claim to have your best interests at heart or claim to kind of have this degree of mutual well-wishing but actually have some ulterior motive or agenda in their relationship with with you if you're you know very wealthy you suddenly might attract lots of friends because they want to use you for your wealth maybe they're kind of slipping into a utility friendship there or something like that so uh, th- there's those kinds of concerns about robots that they will be false friends always because they serve the ulterior motives or agendas of a, of a company or a corporation and i think that's a an important concern to, to bear in mind um but my more general point is that i think that there's there's no in principle reason why a robot can't be a virtue friend as long as it appears to or behaves as if it meets all of these uh conditions and you know if if you remain doubtful um that it satisfies these conditions even though it acts as if it does then you should remain doubtful and suspicious of all human friendships or relationships as well so it's kind of about applying the same standards you know i can always call into question the motives of my friends and wonder whether they really do care about me or um have my interests at heart uh, and people do that but um you know it it seems it seems like it, it's not worth at least from my perspective it's not worthwhile living your life with all of those sort of doubts lingering in, in your mind even though i know people do that yeah. I don't know if that's a well kind of expressed um, kind of summary of my view, but that's um, that's where I'm coming with that. That these kind of behavioristic standards for proving that certain conditions are met apply to debates about patiency, friendship, intimacy, collaboration, etc. Yeah. So what you're doing, uh, one could say, is uh, a little bit like what Kant did in his theoretical philosophy. Uh, you're turning. Uh, I mean, in in his case, in Kant's case, a metaphysical question into an epistemological question. How, not like what how what are things like in themselves, but rather, you know, what are our ways of knowing about them, and how should we think about our ways of knowing about the world? That that was Kant's move, and you seem to be saying, rather than asking what properties do robots that behave as friends or behave as moral patients actually have, we should ask. Well, how do they appear to us? How do we, how would we be able to know whether they actually have those features or not? And you're arguing that actually there are what those things that we can know we uh, are you know observable things, and uh, there's no in principle reason why a robot uh, or other technology couldn't have some of those observable properties. And if the test for whether a human is a friend or a well patient is observing their behavior. Uh, then the same test could be applied to a robot and the robot or other technology could in principle behave in the same way now. Uh, and yeah. Then... I mean, so I think that's, that's good. And that's a more kind of philosophical way of framing it or summarizing it. But yeah, I think that's right that I'm, I'm converting that debate about metaphysics, but whether it does as a matter of fact, satisfy these conditions into this epistemological inquiry into how, how can we know that it satisfies these conditions? And this seems like a, a good way of knowing that or establishing that to a degree of um, epistemic satisfaction that um, should then kind of affect our ethics or our normative practices. That's right. But then so some people would then say, uh, okay, you might be right in terms of whether we could know for sure whether something has the properties of a friend 
or whether it merely behaves like it. Maybe, maybe we can't prove one thing or the other. Maybe we have good reasons to think uh, that the robot doesn't have mental properties, etc. But maybe we can't know for sure because we can also can't know for sure that people have them. They might be zombies. However, uh, in in philosophy, we can sort of theorize. Su supposing, for example, uh, so we talked, I think, in the last episode about the Japanese roboticist Hiroshi Shiguro and his robotic copy of himself, and that actually is already a very impressive humanoid robot. Uh, but he he's a good researcher, so maybe he will add all sorts of advanced large language model technologies, chat functions, and maybe the mechanic properties of the robots will even be improved to the point where it's really hard to tell the robotic copy apart from the real Hiroshi Shiguro. So in, in, in at least a thought experiment, you could imagine that both the robot copy and Hiroshi Shiguro are behaving towards you in the manner that a friend would. And then you can also imagine that well, the robot doesn't actually have an inner life. It doesn't have any thoughts. It doesn't care about you because it cannot care about anything. It doesn't have a free will with which it can choose to be your friend, etc. Whereas Hiroshi Shiguro does have all of these things. Maybe he likes you. Maybe he freely cho chooses to be your friend, uh, spend time with you, etc. And so uh, some people would say that both when it comes to friendship and romantic relationships, this makes a big difference. Uh, so one of them is behaving as a friend, but isn't really a true friend because they're missing some of the properties. And so this goes back a little bit to the so-called properties view about moral patience. That same approach is applied here to friendships and romantic and other relationships. And then, and then the idea is that, well, you also have to have those non-observable properties, which in the normal case, we hope are the causes uh, or the reasons behind the behavior. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, the robot would behave in these ways, but the it wouldn't behave for the right reasons in these ways, and it would be missing some of the men mental or internal or psychological properties. And so uh, the argument would then go that even if you're right, that you know you can't tell the difference, and so perhaps maybe to be sure, and maybe you should assume that perhaps the robot has the abilities. But in principle, there would be a, uh, an ethically relevant difference. Ethically relevant in the sense that uh, there are certain values that are realized between you and the human and not between you and the, the robot because certain properties or capacitors are, are missing. So that, I mean, that's one way of responding. Uh, so, so, so it's sort of agreeing with you, okay, Kate, maybe you're right, that uh, at least, I mean, at, at the moment, we can tell the difference without a problem, but perhaps in the future, we won't be able to tell the difference. Or you might say, and I don't know if you take that view, but I could imagine someone saying that actually, we don't need indistinguishable robots. We just need robots that can do the sorts of things that we want our friends and romantic partners or colleagues, whatever, to do. And actually, those things don't require that technologies be indistinguishable from humans. We just require them to, to behave in certain ways towards us, maybe to be willing to help us when if we need help, and maybe to uh, be willing to talk if we want to talk, or whatever it might be. And perhaps those are not properties that you know, have to be performed in a human-like way. Perhaps they can be performed in a robot-like way, in a chatbot-like way, or, or whatever. So the question would then be whether robots could have those properties that we want. And I think here, a lot of people who are skeptical about robots as friends, romantic partners would say that there are some properties that are missing. And one of them I mentioned just briefly was this idea that there should be a kind of a free choice uh, so if you have to pay a company or buy a robot and it's only going to you know, be your friend so long as you keep paying, then it might seem as if the, the robot or chatbot friend didn't sort of 
freely choose to be your friend or romantic partner. Uh, and that is supposed to be, according to some ways of thinking about friendship and romantic partnership, uh, you know, you can't, but there's the Beatles song, Can't Buy Me Love. And uh, this idea that, you know, and actually some philosophers like Elizabeth Anderson, Deborah Satz and others, they argue that there are certain goods, such as the goods of friendship and, and, and romantic relationships, that uh, somehow the moment you pay for them, uh, they stop having the, 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 uh, the proper character of those kinds of goods. They become something else, perhaps something good, uh, but not, not the same thing that people really want, at least not according to those philosophers yeah so i mean there's a there's a few things i think that are worth um kind of uh, distinguishing between so there's one question of so so even if they don't meet this kind of let's say aristotelian ideal of, of friendship maybe other kinds of relationships are possible with them and maybe they're even we could even call them or refer to them as a kind of friendship such as like a pleasure friendship or utility friendship and so that's one kind of question and we can come back to that in a moment and um, I yeah I think I suppose my, my my view simply is that even if even if they don't meet this ideal of friendship they could still can perform these other friendship type uh, functions in our lives and could be classified as friends in in that sense it, it, again kind of go back to my original point is that in our day-to-day -day lives I think we're pretty comfortable with the idea that we have different kinds of relationships with different people and uh, you know uh, we're some people are acquaintances that we interact with for certain purposes or certain contexts uh you know i mean um uh yeah you know there are people that i will um you know socialize with just kind of on a on a purely kind of social basis uh um but you know i don't um talk about work or anything like that with them and then there's people who i would kind of like their work colleagues slash friends and that i i share more of that part part of my life with them uh and again they're the people that I speak to or contact on a regular basis is the people I only kind of talk to or speak to on a very occasional basis. And so I, I think because we're comfortable with that, those degrees of friendship in our day-to-day -day life, it doesn't really matter to some extent whether we get to this um, Aristotelian ideal or, or whatever the ideal is. With robots, they could perform these these other functions and that could be valuable in and of itself. Uh, so if, if we go back to the idealist kind of perspective as whether they they meet all these conditions that we need for this more ideal form of friendship. I mean, like my temptation in all those cases is always to kind of go back to, well, you know, how to uh, kind of, you're always going to convert the question of it, whether it's it, whether they are in fact our friends into this kind of more epistemic question is like, how, how can we know? So, you know, it, in principle it's possible that, and it has happened historically, right? That um, people are married to people who are, maybe are serving some ulterior motive. There's some rather notorious cases that say in in England where undercover police officers, you know, married people who were parts of kind of radical environmentalist movements and they had uh, kind of intimate sexual relationships with these people and I think may even have been married and had children with them. And then years later, they found out that they were in fact an undercover police officer and this is how they, they first met. And so it's like, well, this is sort of like completely... Um, pulled to shreds, or you know, the, ha the shows that the relationship was this house of cards. It never had a kind of true foundation or basis, and it's certainly the case that some people in those contexts feel kind of deeply betrayed and think that um, the whole relationship was a sham because of how it originated. Uh, but I mean, so my, my, like my view in those cases is that 
maybe finding out how the relationship start to, starts does affect your perception of its sort of ethical or axiological status. And maybe there are sometimes good reasons for that because you think that there is some sort of ulterior motive or agenda behind the relationship that not kind of poisons it or taints it the whole way through. But on the other hand, like if you never found out about this, then would that mean that the relationship was a sham and you just didn't know? I, I, like my, my view is kind of like, well, it doesn't really matter whether you didn't know or not. It, it, the relationship it has whatever features it has for you in your day-to-day -day experience. And it's just as good as if it didn't have this kind of original problem that you never found out about. Uh, in, in the same way, this is kind of my reaction to some you know, classical philosophical problems. Let's say like, are you are you living in a simulation or are you a brain in a vat or something where you're, you're perfectly hooked up to this kind of set of devices that mimics sensory experiences for you? I guess like in principle, it's possible. It's possible that, that you could be living this sort of illusionary sham existence. But if you if you can never know or you can never find out this, then... Who cares, in a sense? I suppose, you know, the movie like The Matrix, if you never find out that you're living in The Matrix, then the life that you live inside The Matrix, to me, is just as good as, um, or as good as a life as you can ever hope to live. And the relationships that you have within it are normal um, relationships with the kind of ordinary status that we would apply to them. And so the, and the hypothetical possibility that you're living in the matrix doesn't really affect it. So it's the same kind of view when it comes to relationships like friendship. If you never know, if there's no way that you can ever find out that the person lacks this property and it never becomes known to you, then it doesn't really affect the ethical status of the relationship. So that's another point. And then just the, the other point you raise about free choice as being an important condition for friendship also for love and intimacy. Well, uh, I mean, there's a few things I would say about that. One is that um, I'm not I'm not sure that that is actually an important property. This is, is one point I would make. Um, I think, you know, I, there's one of my papers where I write about this in relation to kind of loving or sexual relationships with robots. And I use the analogy of arranged marriages and things like this, that, you know, there are people who, who are kind of forced into relationships at some point in time in their lives, but they actually, in, in a, you know, it's not that they're forced at gunpoint or anything like that, but cultural or traditional reasons mean that the partners are chosen for them. And they end up having very kind of happy and well-functioning marriages. And there's a whole kind of body of research on this that arranged marriages don't fail any more frequently than apparently kind of freely chosen relationships. So, it's not obvious to me that the fact that the relationship wasn't freely chosen at the origin point necessarily affects the quality of that relationship or undermines that relationship. So that's that's one point I would make. The other point I would, I would make is that it's not obvious to me that we actually freely choose most of our friends anyway in, in our lives. You know, um, most of us probably choose friends that we're closely in close proximity to. You know, we we form friendships with people that we go to school with or go to college with just because they happen to be around, right? It's not, And oftentimes it's not really that we freely chose them. I, I mean, when I think about it, most of the friendships that I have, did I ever, did I ever like make a, some sort of conscious decision to choose these people as my friends? I don't, I like, I genuinely don't think that that is an accurate 
phenomenological recounting of how most of us form friendships or even kind of intimate relationships. And and to be honest, like, and you'll know this as well. Some sometimes when people re- report on the phenomenology of loving relationships with them, they often express it in terms of like not having the choice you know, that they just kind of fell for this person who was just a really powerful attachment and it wasn't something that they could freely choose. So there's that thing, that aspect to it. And also, I suppose, I don't know, kind of in the background is that I'm I'm skeptical of the idea that any of us really have free choice in you know a philosophical libertarian sense. Um, I I doubt that that's true, and I would I would guess that whatever kind of autonomy or free choice that we have, it's at least possible in principle for uh, robots to kind of mimic that free choice, um, so that they have a, as good a version of it as we have. Again, maybe current crops of robots don't have that feature, but um, it seems like it's, it's not impossible for them to have it in the future. Uh, so, yeah, like I would say those sort of three things about, about freedom. It's not obvious to me that it matters when it comes to relationships. It's not obvious to me that people actually do freely choose relationships and that they're perfectly happy with and would still classify as friendships or whatever. And also, it's not obvious to me that people have freedom of choice in the first place yeah so i mean maybe just uh one a comment about freedom and then maybe we want to talk about collegiality briefly etc but just uh i actually think i mean you, I, I think you're right that uh one association that people have with romantic relationships that's, that's somehow unchosen it's just uh, you you find yourself drawn to someone etc and uh, people want their partner to to feel that way about them that they somehow uh they're they're, they're they're drawn to each other but at this i think at this at the very same time another association and with a good relationship is that it should be a kind of free commitment and a choice and that one should be committed to and some of the ceremonies uh that uh, are associated with uh you know relationships such as making and some sort of announcement okay we're now a, a couple like that can be done on social media these days or something more formal such as a marriage and especially if there's a ceremony uh, which could be, you know, in a courthouse or, you know, at a church, religious wedding, whatever. That there, typically, there's this uh, sort of moment where people are uh, giving a choice. Okay, do you commit to this person? And and there, the idea is that, uh, you know, do you, you know, freely and whatever. And, and is there anyone who has a complaint? And now, okay, now's the time to make the choice. And, and there is a kind of choice point. So I think that that's another association people have. So I think I think with a lot of these uh, types of relationships, there are sort of associations and ideas that we have that kind of pull in different directions and so on the emotional side the idea is what may perhaps supposed to be that people are drawn to each other and they can't help it or whatever but then at the same time uh you know the very same people that value that they also value the idea of committing freely like a kind of choice to their partner so i you know it's interesting to think about whether there's a clash there or whether we can somehow make these ideas fit together in some interesting way uh but i i do think that we you know, we we have very uh, multi-dimensional and sort of complex views about these kinds of relationships, and uh, which can seem indeed to, to to pull in different directions. These ideas, and then of course you can then ask whether you know robots could could they be drawn to anyone? Could it be you know un you know unchosen attraction, so to speak, on the part of the robot? Well, perhaps I mean maybe you you put some sort of chip on a person and then you program the robot to sort of follow around whoever has that chip on and then in a certain sense they're attracted in the sense that they are drawn to uh, the person or maybe you have a facial recognition uh, type of software whatever so there the, the could be technological solution for 
drawing the robot to someone, but then it might be more difficult then to have it make a choice. However, as you say, we can certainly make it behave as if it has a choice and people will, may perceive the robot as making a choice. I mean, people have uh, all sorts of agency-like intuitions about you know, whether it's self-driving cars, apparently deciding to go left rather than right, whether it's a robot that apparently decides to do something or a chatbot that seemingly voluntarily says something. And this is how we perceive anything that appears to be an agent. But anyway, so yeah, I, I agree that if, but some of the aspects of what we value in friendship and I mean, romantic relationships are not to do with free choice. But I would then say that at, this, at the very same time, we seem to have other aspects of these relationships that do seem to you know, see commit free commitments as, as an important thing. And perhaps just maybe one comment about this idea, do I choose my friends? I mean, some people might say, you don't necessarily choose your friends, but what you choose might be to sort of stay their friends or to remain friends with them and that you have a kind of ongoing choice to if let's say that your friend uh develops in a certain way so they uh you know when you're you know you maybe you get to know each other in school but then the friend becomes you know involved in criminal activity and then i i mean a lot of people might then feel that they have a kind of uh, a choice that they're facing should i continue associating with this person uh, uh and then they might feel that they should distance themselves and, and because there's something that's changed about the person that uh, show, shows them that they actually have to choose not to be friends with them so uh, maybe even if there's not a particular like it's not like a marriage when you will you take this friend as your friend you know here now rather it might be like you know do, do I want to continue being being friends with this person do I want to maybe you know cut myself off from the person so that that could be a possible response to that part of, of your view uh but uh, uh i mean maybe maybe we should say something about collegiality uh and I yeah i mean yeah. sorry i don't yeah i don't want to maybe get bogged down in 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 a debate on this particular point but yeah like i'll i take it that yeah that sometimes within certain kinds of relationships there are ceremonies of commitment that um at least on the face would appear to involve a kind of free choice i would like in I'm skeptical of that, uh, having even you know gone through such ceremonies of commitment myself. Like, how much free choice, or whether uh, I really kind of standing there. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think to a large extent, people do follow kind of cultural scripts and cultural expectations when it comes to those things, and also those the contexts of them maybe such as to maybe undermine or make it less likely that people make a, a free and inform, informed decision. And also like with friendships, about whether we have that ongoing commitment and a and a choice or decision to withdraw from that commitment like my own view is that the the kind of internal again phenomenology or psychology of relationships of friendships is more complex than that i mean maybe there are people who are very kind of rationalistic about their friendships and say well this person is no longer you know meeting up to my living up to my standards they've become a criminal or a drug addict they're a a toxic influence in my life. So I'm going to cut them loose and abandon them. I'll make this decision that they are no longer my friend. Like maybe there are people who do that, but I mean, at least to me, when I think back on the friendships that I, I have in my life, I think it's, I think it's more complicated than that. And we, we rarely sort of think about it in those sort of stark terms. And even, and even people who, uh, maybe that we have good reason to no longer stay friends with them. We often find ourselves sort of drawn to them or um, kind of bound up in some commitment with them. Uh, maybe there are kind of ongoing choices there 
to some extent. And, and just one other point I was, would say as well is that there are all, there is like another class of relationships that we have in life where actually we're stuck with those relationships irrespective of what we choose. Again, and we often think of them as very valuable relationships. So again, relationships with, with family, right? Um, these are very important relationships to most people, but we don't get to choose our families so much, right? So there's, uh, but that doesn't necessarily undermine the value of them. And in some cases, it may even like heighten the perceived value of them and that like the relationship that you have with your children is so valuable and so precious, partly because you don't get to choose it and you don't get to say, well, that person is no longer my child because they're a serial killer or something like this, right? So, I mean, yeah, the ethics of relationships is, is complex in that that sense. I did, before we talk about collegiality, which I do want to touch upon, I, do, I just want to mention one something. So, so we've been focusing very much on, I guess, the philosophical debate about whether robots or machines can meet the conditions of ideal friendship or whatever the case may be. Um, if we if we just briefly touch upon the ethics of, let's say they don't, but people do form these attachments to them, or, or let's say we don't know for sure, but people do form these attachments to them. There are a bunch of like ethical concerns that people have at the moment about the kinds of attachments that people form to, you know, bomb disposal robots or chatbots. And, and I suppose we can, it would be remiss of us not to sort of mention or touch upon a couple of those. An obvious one, which you, maybe we've alluded to already, is some fear of like exploitation by a company who's running this uh, machine. That you know you're in service of some corporate agenda. You're like a pawn, being whose emotional responses are being exploited by the machine, and is something uh, problematic in that um, aspect of the relationship. Uh, maybe it also is like harmful to you in forming other relationships. That's a common concern that, you know, you fall into a trap of only relating to machines. Uh, if you're in love with a doll, you can't be in love with a human or you, um, if you prefer relationships with dolls over humans and there's something impoverished perhaps about your life, you're not living like a, a fully human life or a, um fully flourishing life. So, I mean, those kind of concerns linger in the background. I'm, you know, I, I have certain views on, on, on those kinds of concerns. I think some of them are valid. Certainly just, there are reasons to be concerned about exploitation or manipulation and violation of trust by companies that make maybe own the capital, the machines that we form relationships with. Uh, and we should treat those kind of as, as we would treat any sort of, manipulation or exploitation and be, be concerned about it. I mean, whether that means that we can't form actual friendships with the, those machines, I think is, I think it doesn't necessarily undermine that for the same reason that, you know, the ethics of human relationships are complex and we're often betrayed or undermined or exploited by our friends or our parent friends as well. And when that happens, we, you know, we treat it in a certain way or we have a certain ethical response to it and the same ethical response should apply to machines. Uh, the the issue about whether you're losing out or lacking an opportunity for friendships or intimate relationships with humans is more complex, I would say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just I just wanted to at least acknowledge those kinds of concerns. Is there anything you think I'm kind of missing in that brief summary? Uh, well, I, mean, I, I might just add that uh, the, the German philosopher uh, Janina Law argues, for example, that uh, you know people differ quite a bit in their emotional. Uh, 
dispositions. And so maybe let's say that you and I would find it hard to become uh, friends with a robot or a chatbot, whatever it might be. However, some other person might have that tendency uh, to become attached to the replica or the, their robot. Uh, then Yanina uh, Law argues that, well, we should celebrate and value human diversity and there and see that person's capacity as a kind of a capability that we maybe we lack then that we should respect uh, whether or not we ourselves are you know drawn to chatbots or uh, to to robots and so that's that's another perspective here that's sort of independent of whether you whether you think that you can really have a robot as your partner uh, you know maybe other people have those emotional dispositions and we should value that and celebrate as part of human diversity that's one view. And maybe it's just to follow up on a thread that we've talked about in some other podcasts. I mean, I have a PhD student uh, working with me, uh, Cindy Friedman, who is approaching robot ethics from an African uh, philosophical perspective in part. And so she has this paper where she argues that actually in the African Ubuntu uh, philosophical tradition, there's this idea that we have this sort of lifelong quest to become better people. And how do we become better people? Well, we interact with other people. It's a little bit like the Aristotelian idea of virtue friends. And through this interaction with other persons, you know, we become more person-like in that way of thinking. Persons become persons for other persons. And the idea, the worry then that uh, Cindy Friedman develops in her paper is that actually uh, it may seem to me as if I can do this with a robot, but in fact, uh, the robot might be much more rudimentary in its capacities than a human. And so I might actually undermine my, uh, you know, what, what is perceived in this tradition as my ethical uh, kind of quest, if you will, to become a better person by interacting with technologies and robots rather than other people. And maybe I'll become less able to interact with humans in a good way if I spend too much time interacting with robots. I mean, this is not just in that African philosophy traditions. This is a worry that someone like Sherry Turkle, uh, who I think is a sociologist, uh, in her work about what she calls the robotic moment. Uh, and you know, there's the book called Alone Together, that people sit with a technology where there are other people around and everyone wants friends, but they become less good at making friends because they spend too much time with technology. So that's that's another discussion that's out there. Uh, I mean, maybe one last thing about the choice and freedom thing. I mean, as you were talking about, you know, you don't really choose your children, you don't choose your partner, perhaps even though there's might be a ceremony where you're offered the choice, etc. Well, actually, maybe one relevant difference is that you maybe choose to a greater extent the technologies that you use. And so maybe this is actually a difference. So in, in a certain sense, when it comes to the, 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 the choice or the freedom related to the relationships that people might say that they have, maybe that's actually realized to a greater extent with some technologies, because here you have to purchase them, you have to pay for the service, and maybe you have to think about whether to update, etc., accept uh, updates you know maybe you're so, so it could actually almost paradox, paradoxically be the case that there's more choice at least on the part of the human side of the human technology relationship than there might be on the side uh, from a human in a human human relationship so that might be an interesting thing that one might want to think about on some, some occasion but but yeah let's let's also maybe get to collegiality i mean i discussed that in the book partly because uh, um, two things. I mean, on the one hand, like I said before, a lot of psychologists are studying empirically how do people react to technology, uh, technologies that are introduced into the workplace, including robots. Do they feel that these technologies become a new type of team member, a new type of colleague, if, even if you will, uh, if you think about it that way? And, and indeed, a lot of people do seem to have those reactions. They regard certain robots and and, and other technologies 
as a for, as a member of the team, as maybe making the team stronger, as uh, improving their work situation. Other people have the opposite reaction; they don't like work on the technology, etc. But psychologists and sociologists and others, STS researchers, science technology studies, they study this quite a bit. But philosophers have traditionally not really written about, you know, what is a good colleague, what is it to be a colleague in the first place, and you know, what kind of goods. Uh, are distinctive to collegial relationships. However, uh, uh, actually, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Monica Betzler, uh, and uh, uh, has together with uh, a, a German philosopher working in Switzerland, I think, called Jörg Löschke, written uh, a couple of papers about, you know, what is a good colleague? What is a colleague in the first place? What values can be realized within collegial relationships? I myself, together with Yildiz Smits, had written about robots and collegiality before, but that was before we had you know, become become aware of this work by Betzel and Löschke. And so we thought, I thought in this book, it would be interesting to just set whatever we had said, uh, Yildiz Smits and I aside and just ask, okay, let's see what Betzel and Löschke say about what a colleague is and what a good colleague is. And they're not talking about robots, they're just talking about people and ask, could technologies be colleagues by these philosophical standards? And could they be good colleagues? And so, I mean, are, are you aware of any discussions about collegiality in philosophy in the same way that there is discussion about friendship and romantic relationships? Uh, I mean, so I, I certainly seems to be underexplored or less well developed. I'm I'm only I'm aware of that the Betzler Loschka paper or sort of one of their papers on. Yeah, there are just two, but there's one maybe that's more. The, I mean, there's one that's, uh, that might have a subtitle like "What Makes for a Good Colleague" or like it's something along those lines. I can't remember. Uh, the exact name of it. Um, so th that's sort of like the only paper I'm actually aware of that really ex explores this in, in detail. Uh, and as you say, like it is an interesting question from a practical point of view. That, you know, we many of us work with people, and we have colleagues, and we probably do again have like an intuitive sense of what makes for a, a good colleague within the workplace. And it is also a studied phenomenon within human technology relations. So yeah, and. There's perhaps too much fixation on friendship and sexual loving relationships with technology for whatever reason it excites our interest it has this sort of deep historical pedigree but actually this more practical and immediate question of collegial relationships or collegiality is underexplored i think by by comparison so so maybe we could talk about some of those conditions of like what makes for a good workplace colleague yeah i mean I, interestingly in the betzler lush paper they sort of separate first the question what is a colleague in the first place and then secondly the question okay okay well let's say that your colleagues in that sense what makes for a good collegial relationship so maybe we can follow their way of approaching things and so when it comes to what in the first place makes two or more people colleagues they actually say that you have to satisfy at least two or three conditions, and it doesn't matter which two. Uh, I mean, you could satisfy all three of them, uh, but uh, it's enough that you satisfy these two. And let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head. One is that you are members of the same organization. Uh, another is that you uh, there's a certain similarity in the sort of tasks you perform. And the third is are you equal in status and responsibilities? And so, I mean, let's say that two people are, they are bakers or two people are nurses working for the same hospital, the same bakery. They uh, 
they have the same responsibilities in their baking activities and their nursing activities. Uh, and they, you know, they have the same aims and tasks to perform. They very clearly are colleagues by all criteria, but two bakers working in different bakers, uh, they're still colleagues in the sense that they're both doing the same sort of thing and they have the same type of responsibilities, and, but they're not part of the same bakery, same organization. Uh, or you know, two professors, uh, maybe at, uh, in different universities uh, or whatever it might be, they might be colleagues in that sense. But if there's only one of these criteria being fulfilled, okay, so two people, uh, they maybe they have the same sort of task, but they are at different levels of responsibility and they're different organizations, then according to Lushke and Betzler and Lushke, then they are less obviously colleagues. Uh, so this is also the criteria for whether you're a colleague or not. And then, you know, okay, what makes for a good collegial relationship? Well, it is, they say that at least two things are, well, are there part of the relationship, namely one, a kind of solidarity. There's a sort of understanding of the other person's situation and a certain amount of empathy, I guess. Uh, so if you are a nurse, I mean, like let's say during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, there was a lot of hardship uh, in that type of work. And then actually other nurses may be the ones that have the best understanding for what it's like to, to be in your uh, type of situation. Second, recognition. Uh, if you, again, if that's just the same example, you're a nurse, you understand what it is to be a good nurse to perform that type of work well. Uh, I mean, uh, let's say that, you know, you know your, your parents might, you know, whenever you do something in your job, John, they might be like, wow, you're doing it very well. And they cheer you on, but they don't really understand what it's like to, to, to work at the university, whereas maybe one of your the other people working at your in your department they really understand what it is to you know to, to achieve at a high level uh in, you know in your line of work and so they give you their recognition that's that means something different than if your family or your you know your, your partner your whoever your friends say that you know, you're doing a good job so those are the the, the types of things that make for good relate uh, collegial relationships and so it's interesting to think about well could a robot on the one hand be a good sorry be a colleague in the first place could they satisfy those two at least two of the three conditions and then second could there be solidarity and recognition uh, in the interaction with, with a, a robot it seemed to me actually that a robot could perhaps be a colleague by those criteria but perhaps yeah. not a good colleague and so maybe i should just quickly say what i mean that's like the robot could actually be given fairly similar tasks to you depending on the workplace of course i spoke about logistics warehouse uh, work earlier and actually moving boxes around putting things in boxes is uh, you know those those are the kinds of things that people do in logistics warehouses the robot and the human could be doing similar things they could both be members of the same organization but the company perhaps the different responsibilities or actually you know depending on the type of work maybe they actually have very similar responsibilities although you might not think of the robot as a responsible agent but that doesn't matter because only two criteria have to be fulfilled so at least for certain lines of work, maybe by this philosophical criteria, a robot could be your colleague. Yeah, uh, I mean, I just on on point. sorry on responsibility, I get like a part of it will depend on whether that's cashed out in kind of moralistic terms or maybe more descriptive terms. But I'm presuming they meant some sort of more accountability, moralistic standard of responsibility. Yeah, and the point is yeah. that even if they do, it doesn't matter because by their criteria, it's enough that you fulfill two of the criteria. And so, as you say, perhaps if you have a sort of a non-moralistic and non-metaphysical idea of responsibility, well, actually, perhaps even that criteria could be fulfilled. So 
It seems to me that at least for certain types of work, a robot could be a colleague. Uh, but the question then arises, okay, could it be a good colleague? And I maybe I should also say that perhaps there are certain tasks that, for example, one uh, type of work that people often talk about is cutting hair. Uh, and so, you know, being a hairdresser, that is really hard to have a robot do that. I mean, maybe... Uh, I mean, the sort of haircut that you have a bus cut, <laughs> maybe you could stick your head into some sort of thing that, uh, you know, would cut the hair. But uh, whenever you have a, some other type of haircut, this is re really hard to to make a machine do. So there couldn't perhaps be a robot that is working as a hairdresser. Uh, and so, you know, maybe they could be the robot could be part of that organization and maybe it could give it some sort of responsibility. But there just seem to be some sort of tasks where it's much harder to have the robot do the thing. But at least for some lines of work, again, warehouse logistics or whatever it might be, perhaps even teaching, uh, maybe a chatbot, chat GPT and some you know, future version could teach certain very simple tasks. So perhaps chat GPT, perhaps the, the, the warehouse robots, they are they are calling by these criteria. But uh, I mean, I, I'd be curious to see what you think about this. I mean, when I was writing about this, it seemed to me that solidarity and recognition seem to be things that are somewhat hard to imagine between humans and robots because it seemed to be solidarity, for example, seems to re and recognition seems to require a certain kind of understanding. Uh, and so in order to have solidarity with you as a colleague and to recognize you know, your achievements, I, I seem to need to be able to kind of understand uh, perhaps both from a subjective phenomenological yeah. I mean, point of view, what it's like to be in your situation and also to, to assess and appreciate, uh, you know, your work. And so that seems to be something like, at least a lot of people think that that type of understanding is missing in, in robots and, and chatbots and other technologies. Yeah, I, I think I think you kind of stumble into a similar debate that we stumble into, yeah. like on friendship or love. When you look at solidarity and recognition, again, depending on how those are understood, it seems like they probably do require some subjective mutuality, as you say, understanding and and empathy. Let's say with the position of your colleagues, and yeah, look, there's many reasons to doubt, or people will doubt whether robots can currently satisfy those conditions, um, or whether they ever will satisfy them. You know, I'd probably fall back into a similar line of argument that I think. In principle, they could if they behave as if they care about you or have empathy and recognize your work. I think like recognition, again, as I understand it, potentially is easier to satisfy. Solidarity might be the tricky condition to satisfy. I would also say like maybe by this this set of criteria, there are very few colleagues that I have that would be classified as good colleagues. I'm, I'm trying to think, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, like obviously you have some sort of sense of solidarity with your colleagues, but... It seems like many of us probably fail to live up to those standards on a regular basis. Certainly, with like within within academia, where a lot of people are very much self focused, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I would maybe also add that I, I said briefly already that I had written together with Gilles Smith about this topic, and and we actually had a much longer list of properties of good qualities, uh, and we argued that actually a lot of those items on our list could probably be satisfied by robots, chatbots, and other technologies. Uh, I mean, we had things such, such as being dependable, performing tasks on time or like, you know, not bullying. And, you know, a lot of we just kind of free associated like, what sort of things do we like in colleagues? Uh, and we came up with a long list and actually quite a few of them didn't seem to be human specific. 
So, uh, but I, you know, in my, in the, in the, in the book we're talking about, I thought, you know, let's go to a theory that wasn't about technology, namely the Betzler-Lushke theory, and ask what does it imply about human-robot interaction? Uh, but I thought I'd just mention that uh, you know, we came up with a longer list of qualities, and actually a lot of them seem to be technology uh, compatible. So, I mean, yeah. let, I look, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot more to be said here, but I think because we're running slightly long again, I do want to make sure we don't neglect one question, which we sort of postponed from the end of the previous episode as well, which is this question about like whether whether we should be debating the ethics of moral patiency for machines and different kind of relationship standards with machines. Because uh, there is a school of thought out there that views this kind of conversation, this philosophical navel-gazing or armchair metaphysics about the properties of machines as a distraction, in some sense, from the true, truly important ethics of technology. Uh, so, you know, this is all kind of slightly fantastical, science-fictional discussion about whether robots will someday be sentient or conscious and care about us and love us and so forth. Uh, and there are real kind of world practical issues right now that we should be focused on. So, I mean, like, like if you think about them briefly, let's say on wh like whether whether machines can have kind of moral status or moral patience, you know, it, it, obviously an interesting question for philosophers to get their teeth into, but perhaps a smokescreen for companies or a, a useful distortion by companies who want to avoid liability for what their machines do because well you know if the machines have some sort of moral patience or status um we can kind of ignore questions about uh, the responsibility for what we do with those machines and like let's say even on that question of whether a machine can be a good colleague somebody might come along and say well you know all the kind of ai systems that are currently in operation in the workplace rely on a huge amount of exploitation of labor of human workers to train them, to manufacture them, to design them. Something like GPT has to be trained with human trainers who are often exposed to you know, uh, graphic and traumatizing material. And this conversation about whether the, whether GPT could be a good colleague in some sense, whether we could co-teach a course with GPT and it could be a good co-teacher is a distraction from that kind of ethical question or issue, and 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 maybe papers over or encourages us to uh, not see that that problem in the background. What what do you think of those kinds of of argument? And I like I'm I'm not possibly not even fairly summarizing them all. They're all kind of nuances to them, but just this kind of concern about it being a you know highly abstract theoretical fantastical discussion that distracts from real world issues uh well i think i think i have three main views uh, about this uh, or three main responses the first is that if indeed it's true that this does distract away from injustices and uh real suffering on the part of people and etc then then yes uh i agree uh we, sh we should then focus on those issues instead and Try to uh, you know do something about that those injustices etc. So I definitely agree. If that's the case, I I'm not so sure that uh, we can't have more than one discussion at the same time. So I, uh, it could be that there is a class of people that are distracted and then stop uh, being able to concentrate on more than one thing at the same time. 
but so, so yeah but so if that's true then maybe, yes let, let's focus on the other things that are more important first however i, I think that it is possible to uh to think about different problems and i think we do it all the time i mean our lives contain many many different things that we think about and that we uh, spend our time on so why can we not in philosophy and, and ethics etc think about different topics it's not like thinking about one topic makes it impossible for us to think about another uh, but again I, I agree if it were the case then yes let's focus on those other things instead i don't think it's the case that's the first thing second as we said a few times people find this really fascinating uh, that's one of the reasons why it's always part of science fiction, uh, relationships with technologies, robots. Second, uh, whenever you teach a class on technology ethics to students, they want to talk about this. Uh, lots of journalists are interested in this. They write articles because they think that the general public is interested in this and indeed they seem to be. So it's just like by popular demand, it seems to be something that people find fascinating. And then third, uh, and this is a little bit like the first point, but it's a sort of different take on it. If there were only a few ethicists and philosophers out there, and there was a kind of shortage, and so we had to choose either we write about injustices and bias and things like that, or we write about can you be friends with robots or can robots be more patients, then here too I would say, yes, let's focus perhaps first on injustices, uh, and those things are perhaps more important. But there's actually too many philosophers out there. There are more of them than there are positions. And so, of course, you can philosophize about these things. You don't have to work at university. But this is just to say that there are so many people uh, who are interested in these questions. And there's so many people who could sort of divide uh, the, the labor among them. And so, so maybe let's say that you don't like these kinds of questions. Then why don't you focus on something else instead? Let's say that I like them. I can focus on these questions. And uh, maybe there's a third person who is interested in some completely different topic. They can write about that. And then later, perhaps we can compare notes. Uh, but there are going to be enough of us uh, academics out there uh, who can work on these topics. So we can divide it up in terms of who is interested in what, maybe who's good at what. And so there can be a division of labor here. Uh, I personally think that it's a good idea to actually jump around a little bit. And so your work on a certain topic, let's say, uh, you know, more patience might be informed by thinking a little bit about friendship and partiality, which might in turn be uh, you know informed by thinking about agency and, and things like that and and, and uh, well justice and harm and uh, etc bias etc. So I think actually that it's it can be good for people to kind of not just focus on one thing because then they can learn about different debates, different ideas, different types of arguments, and that can strengthen their their views and understanding of, of the particular topic that they do want to focus on. But again, there are enough philosophers out there that we we don't have to choose that it's not like everyone has to work on one topic solve that first then everyone goes to the second uh, list of the priority you know the, the, the prioritized topics then they solve that problem then we go to the third i think probably we're going to make more progress on, on everything on the list of priorities by actually having people work on different things coming up with new ideas and then having people kind of look around a little bit and seeing, well, maybe what they said over there when they talked about this topic could actually be helpful to my topic about what agency or patiency or justice or whatever it might be. So I think we should always think of, yeah, I mean, this is not just in philosopher academic work. I mean, life in general, we needed to divide up tasks. And uh, if there are enough of us that we could cover a lot of different tasks, then why not do things in that way? So uh, there's this whole idea that people should sort of stop thinking about these topics um, 
Okay, okay, okay. I, again, I, I premise all of this that if indeed it does distract away from more important points, I, I on that condition, I agree, then let's focus on more important points. But I do kind of believe that the one, we can think about more than one thing at the same time. And second, there are enough people who are interested that we can divide up the tasks. Plus, people are really interested in this stuff. Yeah, I, okay, I think all of that is um, uh, kind of sensible thoughts. I, like, I mean, like maybe if I just add a, a couple of, of comments on that. Uh, there's a broader question here about like the ethics of scholarship. And I did a whole podcast series on the ethics of academia, which I think I just, I explored this question with most people about like, do you have some sort of duty to pursue only certain questions because they're more ethically pressing or important? And um, yeah, there's a, there's a huge volume of scholarship out there which is not directed at um, these kind of real world ethical issues at all, right? So you know, if you're going to complain about people discussing the moral status of of machines, you know, why not complain about all the English scholars writing the latest reinterpretation of, of Jane Austen or something like this. You know, there's, as you say, there's no shortage of, of scholarship and research out there. So it's, it's not obvious that this is, this is a problem. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen anyone kind of do the accountancy on it about like whether there are too many papers published on, or like what the ratio of papers on, let's say, problems of bias and discrimination in AI systems versus the moral status of AI systems. My subjective impression is actually there's probably far more papers on the bias and discrimination topic than on the moral status topic. Although, like, I, I will say, I also think there possibly are too many papers on the moral status topic, certainly in the past few years. And, you know, I even felt that when I wrote some of my stuff on it that, um, you know, it wasn't obvious to me that it was adding anything to the conversation or debate. And I think there's been even more papers published in recent years. Some people have done kind of literature reviews and you know, several hundred papers on the topic of moral patiency for machines published in the past five or six years. Uh, and it's not obvious that most of those are any, adding anything new or novel to the discussion. And having read some proportion of them, I would tend to agree. You know, it's not for me to say whether people shouldn't publish those because there's lots of repetition in scholarship anyway. And Philosophers have been debating the problem of free will for millennia, and you know there's some sort of new insights to be carved out there, and it's hard to say whether any individual paper does or does not add to the conversation. So I'm not going to criticize people for doing it, but my own kind of subjective view is that you know it, it possibly is slightly like overexplored, but no more so than kind of other other topics are are overexplored. Uh, and just the, the more important point is that like at least when it comes to like real world policy interventions or legal interventions into the world of AI, it seems very clear to me that the the focus is appropriate. Like if you look at something like the, AI, the EU's AI Act, you know, the, there was some initial kind of parliamentary discussion about issues on moral patience or status of machines or a moral agency of, of machines, whether they should be ascribed to kind of legal status. That was very quickly abandoned. And, you know, the focus is very much on what I think critics would say are the important topics, like topics around discrimination or bias or the risks that these systems pose to people, uh, privacy risks or, and so forth. So um, it, at least when it comes to the regulation or management of AI, it seems like the focus is on the things that the critics would prefer the focus to be on. Yeah, and maybe uh, one more comment about this uh, discussion about legal personhood or legal personality for 
for technologies. I mean, I, there are people such as Jacob Turner who argues that actually that can be uh, relevant for issues to do with bias and, and injustices, etc. Because they, well, he, Turner argues, if I understand correctly, that if, for example, some technology could hold property, then maybe it could compensate people who are somehow in, harmed or injured uh, if it's not obvious what human being uh, uh, you know should do that. I mean, so they could. We talked about responsibility gaps uh, and accountability gaps in a previous episode. One possible solution, uh, argues uh, Jacob Turner, could be that uh, actually the technologies have certain features that are ascribed to companies and to the people normally, uh, such as you know the, the 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 right to hold property. That could be a way of because you know, then you can compensate the the person who's been harmed with with that properties. I mean, this is to say that maybe giving a certain right. Uh, or a certain status to uh, technology might seem like a, you know it's not worth it for the sake of the technology itself, but it could be that under certain circumstances it could actually benefit people. Uh, that's that's a big discussion that we can have now. But this is to say that it's not there's no guarantee that these issues are going to be completely separate. And I think that even in that EU uh, Commission uh, discussion, that was I think perhaps at least one of the motivations for taking bringing this up because they were thinking about okay what. How should we think about things such as self-driving cars and other technologies that maybe seem to be performing a service where perhaps it's some, sometimes unclear who's responsible and maybe we can solve at least some of the problems by uh, you know, introducing some new ways of moving sort of uh, giving money around and uh, compensating people if there's a uh, so it's harm or injury or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so the way in which I framed it might have, might have kind of mis, uh, created a misimpression, but that, that the introduction of that idea into the regulatory debate was not because people were concerned about us exploiting or harming our machines or something like that. But yes, more kind of practical question about how you would ensure liability or compensation is appropriately paid to to people if a machine did something uh, that that harmed them. So yes, uh, that that's a, a fair point. Uh, We've probably gone a bit a bit long on this episode, but uh, do you maybe we could wrap up with any recommendations? Um, I like I did have one kind of hot off the press, which has just happened to read this past week. I mean, let me get the title of it. It is by um, Joanna Bryson. So Katie Evans, Scott Robbins, and Joanna Bryson. It's a paper in topics of cognitive science, just published. September 2023, when we're recording this, called Do We Collaborate with What We Design? Which is uh, very much a critical take on this notion that machines can be our co-workers and that we can collaborate with them. And they can outline various reasons as why that is not possible at the moment in any meaningful sense, uh, partly because machines should be conceived as a kind of capital that is kind of owned by others uh, and not as a kind of of coworker. That's a very quick gloss on the argument, but I think it's a, a useful um, articulation of that kind of critical position. Very much, I guess, consistent with what those authors, certainly Robbins and Bryson, have previously said. I don't know Katie Evans at all, uh, but I thought that was a good paper that outlines this critical perspective. I don't necessarily agree with everything that they say, but I think they do make a number of good points within it. Yeah, so, so Katie Evans uh, recently uh, wrote a PhD thesis about the ethics of uh, automated driving uh, in Sorbonne, I think, in Paris. And so uh, she's coming at from from that point of view. But yeah, I, mean, I think that's a great, I also looked at that paper. It's a great 
way of carrying over some of the previous arguments indeed from Robbins and Bryson into this context of collaboration. Uh, now, so that could be seen as a recommendation that is skeptical of this idea of uh, relationships and co cooperation with robots. I will recommend a paper that um, in, in a certain sense we implicitly uh, imply or have talked about, namely uh, Helen Ryland's paper. Uh, the, the main title is it's, it's Friendship Gym, but not as we know it, I think. And then there's a subtitle, I think something like Matters of Degree and Friendship. Uh, Degrees of Friendship and something. Yeah, yeah. I, am. I think I actually really like this paper. Uh, so Helen Ryland argues that we shouldn't think of friendship and romantic love and collegiality. Well, she doesn't talk about collegiality, but she could have said this, this, but it we shouldn't think about this as a sort of all or nothing, sort of either or issue, on or off. We should rather think about us as matters of degree and some maybe, I mean, very much in line with some of what you said before. You know, I mean, maybe people can be friends to different degrees and maybe some people are friends in the fullest possible sense. Some people are acquaintances that you're friendly with. And, uh, you know, what about robots? Maybe they can't be friends to the fullest degree in every along every dimension, but they could perhaps do a lot of the things that friends can and should be doing. And so to a certain degree, you can have them as your friend. Maybe to a certain degree, they could be a colleague, etc. So uh, I think, I mean, in a certain sense, that point is very obvious. And so why did Ryland have to write a philosophy paper about it? But I think she's actually picking up on a trend of discussing this as an either-or thing. I mean, I think my, I myself and others in the past have often written, uh, you know, maybe you argued, yes, they can be friends, and maybe then I, together with Lily Frank and others, argued, no, the robots cannot be romantic parts or friends because they don't have the right properties. And so, I mean, I think Helen Ryman is exactly right that, we, well, you know, should we not ask, well, maybe could this be a matter of degree? Could they have some of the properties, not all of them? And so... Yeah, I think that's a very clear and, and neat argument. And so it's very uh, a good and worthwhile uh, contribution to this discussion. It would be interesting yeah. to fit that against your recommendation and say, well, perhaps technologies can live up to some of the aspects of collaboration and be, be you know, quasi-collaborators, uh, even if they are property and even if uh, you know, uh, those three authors are right about a lot of the things they're saying. So it would be interesting to match those, uh, pit those against each other. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose to be fair, I was I was kind of channeling Helen Ryland in some of my contributions anyway in this episode, or I, I had that idea in my mind. So that's a that's a good, a very good recommendation. And I, as you say, I think it's an important corrective to the tendency, perhaps within the philosophical literature, to just kind of fall into these these binary camps. I mean, it happens in in many debates, but it's either either this or or not. But actually, as you say, the reality is probably more a matter of degree. Okay, I think we should uh, leave it at this point, and uh, we will come back with the, the final episode then on uh, kind of wrapping up on some of the themes within your book, uh, looking at uh, the future of human technology relationships. Sounds good. Thanks a lot.